Happy Mother's Day, Mom. My mom's sitting up here on the front row. I love you. Does this count as a gift right here? No? Okay. All right. For the rest of us, we are in the third week of our Heaven is for Real series. And just by way of review, before we move into the content for this morning, we've been talking about the question of, at death, is there anything else? Or is it like, that's it, you're dead, like game over? And what we're looking at in Scripture is the expectation that at your death, it is not game over, but there is something else that happens. In fact, for the Apostle Paul, he believes that your body, your dead body, like Jesus, will one day come back to life again. It will experience resurrection, which means that the body that you are in right now will one day, even after death, come back to life again. Now listen, it's going to be a new body, it's going to be an immortal body, it'll be an imperishable body. And it will be free from things like disease and decay and pain, but it will happen. And if you were to ask Paul, well, when is this going to happen? What he'll tell you is when Jesus returns to the earth. At the second coming of Jesus, he expects this to take place, which then led us to ask last week, yeah, but what happens between the moment you die and Jesus' second coming? Like, is there anything, or is it like we just sleep for ever long that takes, and when Jesus shows up, it will feel like just a moment, or is there something else? And so we took a look at our best guess, given the scriptures and what they teach, that at death, you will experience one moment you'll be in this life, and the next moment you'll be in another life. You might be maybe dazed by that transition, but the essence of who you are, your spirit, your soul, will continue right on. You will remember who you are, and you will remember those that you love, and you'll be in what Jesus kind of talks about when he's referring to When he's talking to the thief on the cross next to him, he will say, today you will be with me in paradise. That whatever we experience, it will be like paradise. Or he'll tell a story about you're going to go to, he'll call it Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. And it's a picture of a place of comfort for us. And in it, while we have no idea what it will probably look like, it will at least be a place of happiness and peace and joy in the continual conscience presence of Jesus and the love of God. That's what you have to look forward to in the moment of your death. But this third week, this morning, I want to talk to you about the assumptions that the Bible has in regards to time. I want to talk about what the Bible tells us in regards to time. And this is important because that's really what we're studying here. This heaven is for real. What we're talking about when it's all boiled down is the reality of time and how we're supposed to think about it. And specifically, we're discussing and studying. Now, let me give you a a big theological word, and you should just repeat it to friends and family later today because you'll look smart. But here's really what we're talking about. It's called eschatology. Eschatology means it is the study of the end times. It is the study of the things that come at the end or the last. And so just keep dropping that at lunch. So in eschatology, like people think you're smart, just keep doing that. Now, here's the biblical perspective of time is that it's linear meaning it has a beginning point and it has an end point and it moves in a linear fashion in that direction. Our experience here on earth and in the afterlife will be a linear direction. Now, I remember even as a kid learning this concept. Um, it's funny what memories you have as a child and kind of what sticks and what doesn't, but I, very, I specifically remember the year was 1976, so even though I'm 28, it was 1976. 
it was the 200-year anniversary of uh, America, right? 1776, 1976, and so you had all that bicentennial celebration. And I'll never forget, I was with my parents at a pizza parlor, and the cups had a, a picture of the Revolutionary War, like soldiers who were fighting the Revolutionary War. And as a little kid, I remember thinking, I cannot wait for the Revolutionary War to come back again so I can fight and be a soldier in the Revolutionary War. I just couldn't wait to be in the Revolutionary War. And I remember communicating that to my parents and them having to explain to my little tiny mind, which I'm not sure has gotten much bigger, but to my little tiny mind that it doesn't work like that. Like time, it will not be 1776 ever again. Time is linear. Now, they didn't use those words. And I just remember being crushed as a kid that I'll never get to wear that. That's cool looking uniform and the muskets and it's never coming back for me. What that means is our linear perspective of time precludes things like reincarnation. Like you're not going in a circle over and over again, spitting out in a whole new life, which has taken a very popular comeback in recent years, nor no matter what that Facebook test told you, you did not have a previous life. You were not Julius Caesar before it is who you are now. That just did not happen, right? I mean, could you even imagine? I used to be Julius Caesar. Now I'm just chilling here in South Bend, but I used to be the emperor of Rome. I don't quite get how that works. No, no, from the Bible's perspective, in the beginning, God created, and then at some future date, God brings it to an end. Straight line, linear. So if I could, I'd like to talk to you about that line. If we could begin at the starting point, and the very starting point of our story is God's perfect will. And you can find it in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It is a story that's trying to paint a picture of what the earth looks like when nothing outside of what God wants to happen happens. It is perfection. And in the language, they don't know what to call it, so it's described as sort of like this garden and that provisions for what you need for life is everywhere. You will be taken care of perfectly in this garden, the provisions that God makes for us, and you're naked and you don't even have any shame about it. Like that's what it says, like they were naked and without shame. Now, what all that language, when you boil it down, it just means that sin doesn't exist and guilt doesn't exist. And shame doesn't exist. There's no separation between us and God or us and one another. That everything that humans need has been provided by God. And they've been created in His image. And in that image, then, God calls us to have dominion over the earth. Now, don't think of dominion as conquer. Think of it more as in His image, He hands to us then divine authority of care and protection. It's just a brief description. It's just a couple chapters. But if you're looking at the earth, in this moment, it paints us a picture of an existence free from sin and death, at least as we know it, and decay and pain. and con- There's no conflict. There's no cancer. There's no, tornado- no tornadoes. It's just God and humanity and creation living in perfect harmony. It's just like a, a Disney song, like perfect harmony. That's what it is. And then you get to Genesis 3. You remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Everything gets screwed up. In fact, from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis 11, theologically, the Bible is trying to explain to us through four stories that everything that was good, that God made good, got screwed up. In fact, it will tell the four stories are when, when, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that God specifically said, don't eat from that. You can have anything you want, but just not that one tree. Or it's the story of Cain killing his brother Abel. It's also the story of Noah and the flood and the Tower of Babel. So by the time you're done reading Genesis chapter 11, you're, you should be thinking to yourself, man, the world is really screwed up. And we feel the effects of that. Like, I think this is the easiest Christian doctrine to talk about and prove because we see it all around us. Anytime we see our own sin or the sin of others have an effect on our life, we recognize this world is screwed up. When you turn on the TV and you hear that news story about 200 Nigerian schoolgirls who are kidnapped and sold into who knows what, our thinking should immediately go back to this world is totally screwed up. 
Anytime we see once again that the Cubs lose yet another game, we recognize this world is screwed up. We feel it in a very personal way. So anytime you've been betrayed by a loved one, or anytime that you've been the victim of injustice, or anytime you've had to walk out of a doctor's office and you were just diagnosed with a particular disease, we think to ourselves, really? I don't think it's supposed to be like this. Which then naturally leads us to this question. Where is God? Why doesn't he do something? I mean, if he really creates the earth and then in the end, what, he's powerless to do anything about its condition? Is he really going to just walk away from all this brokenness and say to hell with it? I mean, literally, is that what God is doing? Does he feel nothing? When he looks down from heaven, is there nothing in his heart and his mind that compels him to rescue us from this situation? And so what happens is the outplaying then of Genesis 12, even to the end of Revelation 22, is the story about time. Now, in the Old Testament, time is portrayed in a very simplistic fashion. It's linear and it's broken down into two primary categories. You have the present age, which is everything is messed up. Sin exists, disease exists, death exists. But what you're looking for is the age to come. And so on one hand, you have this present age, but you're hoping, you're longing for the age to come, and that's how time is viewed. This age and the one that is to come. And the present age, we recognize and experience brokenness and sin and injustice and despair and pain. But what you're longing for is the age to come. It will be an age where God breaks into history, into the earth as we know it, and he'll bring an end to that old age and bring about a new age, a new eon, where he will restore once again the way he intended it from the very beginning. God is going to right everything that is wrong that he's going to remove the curse from humanity and he's going to smack down all of his enemies. And this is most prominent when you get to the prophets because when you get to the prophets in the Old Testament, what's happening is the people of God, the Israelites, they're in exile. And they're having to experience what it feels like to have oppressors and people who are dominating them. And so it starts with the Babylonians are mistreating them and the Assyrians are mistreating them and the Persians are mistreating them and the Greeks and then the Romans. We're talking hundreds of years, centuries. And if you were living at that time as one of God's people, a Jew, an Israelite, the whole time you'll be longing for God to finally break into history and bring about the new age because you're tasting injustice now. You're tasting a lack of freedom now, and you're, you know what the present, the present time, the present age means, but you're longing for that moment when God is going to show up and he's going to do something and smack down his enemies. And that defining moment between that one age, the present age, and the new age is referred to by this phrase, and you'll see it over and over again in the Old Testament. It's called the day of the Lord. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. Oh, I'm so tired. Yes, but the day of the Lord is coming. We're so exhausted, but the day of the Lord is coming. I'm so sick and tired of being treated by everybody else like this. Yes, but the day of the Lord is coming. Now, there's tons of them in the Old Testament. Let me just show you a couple so you can kind of catch a flavor of what the day of the Lord is going to be like. And often it's usually very violent sounding, like usually because it's talking about like the enemies of God are going to get smacked down. And that's good news if you feel like you're being oppressed all the time. But I'm going to start with Amos chapter 5. And Amos is unique. He uses the language of the day of the Lord, and he spins it in judgment even against his own people because they're a bunch of hypocrites. Like they're religiously a bunch of hypocrites. And so they're looking forward to the day of the Lord, but really they're living their lives out of hypocrisy. And so this is what Amos will say in chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be like a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. 
as though he entered his house and he rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? And then he goes on and talks about how I hate your religious festivals, and I hate all, I mean, he goes on to their religious practices and how they recognize that your heart's not any of it, it's all for show. And so that's what he goes on to talk about. Or Joel chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The prophet Joel says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm on the holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor will it be in ages to come. Like this is a picture of the day of the Lord. Or Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and quickly coming. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung, which is gross. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Or, this is the, the last words of the Old Testament. It's in Malachi chapter 4. These are the last words of the Old Testament before you get to the New Testament. It says this, Surely the day is coming, and it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left on them. But for you who revere my name... The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Anytime you can use the word frolic, it's good. Like it's, you're going to frolic. Then you will trample on the wicked. And there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. And now listen to this in verse 5. This is interesting. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, I don't know if you remember, just fast-forwarding for a moment in the New Testament, do you remember uh, when Jesus is teaching one time, they get that the day of the Lord has showed up, but they don't remember seeing Elijah. So you remember them asking Jesus, but wasn't Elijah supposed to come back first? Do you remember who Jesus says took up the ministry of Elijah? Do you know who that was? Do you remember? John the Baptist. Let's see, that passage that Jesus quotes saying, John the Baptist took up the ministry of Elijah to prepare for my way. But the Old Testament understanding is it will be a moment, a real moment in history where God will break into the world and he's going to fix it. And he's going to restore it. And he's going to make all things new. Now, when you get to the New Testament, something happens by way of their view of time. It's not as simplistic, meaning present age, day of the Lord, the new age to come. The New Testament still has those same categories, but they collapse on one another. Meaning, in the New Testament, it recognizes that the great day of the Lord did arrive in, the, in Jesus of Nazareth. And at his death, burial, and resurrection, God has broken into the earth. A new eon has begun, and God is presently making all things new. That reconciliation is taking place, that God has not just given us over. And so when we ask, is there nothing in God's heart that beats for his creation to say, i got to fix this? What we know from Jesus' best friend John in John 3.16 is, no, listen, 
God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. That no, I'm breaking in and the kingdom of God, how God wants it, is now breaking in in the present. And so we acknowledge the kingdom of God is here even as we're waiting for it to come in its fullness. And yet we live in the, we recognize that even though the day of the Lord has showed up in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we still await one more day of the Lord. And we are living in between the times. If I go back to the graphic here to kind of show you. Here's what it looks like. So you see two lines. One is the old age and one is the new age. And you see that section where they overlap? That's where you live. That's where I live. We live in between the times. And so the old age was what was happening. You had sin, you had death, you had disease, you had law. But then Jesus dies and is buried and comes back to life again. And a new age is created. It's an age that could be characterized by grace and mercy and healing. It's a brand new day. But for now, they overlap and we experience both simultaneously because we're living in between the times, even as we're looking forward to the great day of the Lord at His second coming where nothing exists except for this new age. So you see the overlap that we're in? It's the in-between times, and this is where we are, and this is the perspective of time in the New Testament. And I want to say this because this is important. As we talk about heaven is for real, sometimes we get all, oh, heaven, heaven. Listen, heaven is real, and it is totally okay for us to long for that place, but heaven, or what happens to you at death, is not the main focus of Scripture, nor is our greatest hope and longing heaven. The tension in the Bible is never really about here versus there, but rather now versus then, between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his second coming. And what that means for us practically is you're living in the kingdom of God, like it's broken in, even though we recognize it's not here more fully. It's sort of like picture uh, your wife is cooking in the kitchen a delicious meal. You love it, and you can just smell it throughout the house. You just watch it there on the stove and, and, and everything. Like, so what do you do? You go into the kitchen. What are you going to get from her? What are you, what are you hoping to get? A bite. Oh, and you can taste it. And it's delicious. And it reminds you what's about to take place. What's about to take place is dinner. The kingdom of God is like that. It's broken in and we can taste it. And yet it reminds us that when Jesus returns, there will be a great feast, a great banquet in which we'll get to sit down at the table with Jesus himself. But it's broken in, and we get to experience it. And that's why we should pray for and expect the things that belong to the kingdom of God. Things like when somebody gets sick, we should pray for healing now. Why? Because the kingdom of God is broken in. When somebody feels like they're in bondage to sin or some sort of addiction, we should pray for freedom and deliverance from that now. Why? Because the kingdom of God is broken in. Anytime we see brokenness in the world in terms of, and we need reconciliation and restoration, we go to work for that and we pray for that. Why? Because the kingdom of God is broken in now. And when you see Jesus' ministry here on earth, what does he do? It's a sign of the presence of the kingdom of God, of what God wanted to happen from the very beginning happens around Jesus. Anytime Jesus encounters somebody who's sick, what does he do? He heals them. Why? Because that's what God wanted from the very beginning. Anytime he comes across somebody who's demonized and struggling with that sort of oppression, what does he do? He casts out a demon. Why? Because that's what God wanted from the very beginning. Anytime somebody's on the outside and they don't think that they could get in because of their sin or their own moral failings, what does Jesus do? Oh, no, you are invited into the kingdom of God. Why? Because that's what God wanted from the very beginning. And that's why he will teach us to recognize, oh, it's here but we were waiting for it to come more fully. That's why Jesus will teach his disciples to pray this in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. Now, is it on earth just like it is in heaven? I sure hope not. And it's not, right? 
But what we, we pray for, we long for here on earth, whatever love looks like in heaven, we're going to pray and work for that here on earth. Whatever joy looks like in heaven, we're going to work and pray for that here on earth. Whatever reconciliation looks like in heaven, we're going to pray for that here on earth. That's what Jesus teaches us. And he says, listen, the kingdom of God is always advancing. And so he'll tell parables about the kingdom of God advancing. He'll say, listen, I know it looks at times like it's just a mustard seed. It's so small. But if you'll keep watching it, it will end up being like a tree that the birds could come and rest in. I know it's like yeast, and yeast is just so small. But if you'll keep your eye on it, it will affect everything. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. But for now, there are still other kingdoms. There are still other wills that are being done. Things happen on earth right now that God does not desire because we live in between the times. There are things that happen that he does not want to happen because we're still living in the presence of two different kingdoms. And we look forward to the fullness. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. In fact, sometimes people, like when they're curious about Christianity or they're kind of new, like, like where should I start in the Bible to read? More often than not, they, they start in Revelation. And I would just say, don't ever start in Revelation. It's the worst place to start. Go pick John or Mark or something like that. But the final book of the Bible, Revelation, is the story that lets us know in the end, Jesus is coming back and it's going to be all right. Or Revelation 22, verse 20, it says, He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You ever heard the word Maranatha? You ever heard that word? It's the Aramaic word. It's a prayer. Maranatha means, come, Lord Jesus. We live in the here, but not yet of life. And this is important because it explains so much of what happens around us. Because we have questions to the things that go around us, like, Why do bad things happen? The answer is because we're not yet living in the fullness of God's kingdom, but it's coming. And we should encourage one another with the truth that God will ultimately right everything that is wrong. If there's injustice, God will fix it. If there's persecution, God will vindicate. If there's sickness, God will heal. Death will not have the final say. And so the whole point of Revelation then in the end is we know the end. It's sort of like a you ever, uh, there's a big sporting event you want to watch, but you can't because you got some other activity, so you DVR it, and so all day you're looking forward to going home and just watching the game, and before you do, you check your Facebook news feed, and one of your friends spoils it and gives you what the, end, the final score is. Everyone ever happened to write? We don't like those people. And when Jesus returns, we will be vindicated for those people who spoil it, right? But what happens, if you know the end score, what you know is your team in the end wins. So in the second quarter, if they're down by 21 points, you don't freak out. And the reason why you don't freak out is because you know how it already ends. Like, it already, you already know from Facebook that your team's going to win, so you're all right. Like, and it might not look like it in the second quarter. Like, if you didn't know the end score, you'd be like, oh, my goodness, we're never going to come back. You start to flip out. But because you know the end score, you know, no, it's going to be okay. I don't know yet how, but in the end, it's going to work out. That's what the fullness of God's kingdom is. It might not look like it at times, but the book of Revelation is the spoiler on our Facebook that says, in the end, God wins. So no matter what it looks like, no matter what you're experiencing, God will win. We are not at the mercy of cosmic forces or fate or accident. We're following after the Lord of lords and the King of kings who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and no one has a greater name than his. And nothing will stand victorious over him. And God will have his way, and his love will compel it. He will bring about what he started from the very beginning, and he will establish on the earth his good intent that he wanted all along. And he'll establish for himself a kingdom that this time lasts forever and will be all in all, meaning nothing else will exist. This is what Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For when I said he has put everything under his feet, now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, when the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Thus, this is our great and certain hope that no matter what, God has the last word. And so we believe that God has broken in, that the great day of the Lord has showed up in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and yet we can properly say we're still waiting for that final great day of the Lord. And thus we live simultaneously in between a time where two, two kingdoms continue to exist. We have tasted salvation and still await it. We have tasted freedom from sin but still deal with it. We we have bodies that have been redeemed, and at times they still sabotage us. We're living in the age of the Spirit, an age of grace, an age of hope, a new eon, yet our hearts are longing for more. And that's why this time is marked by conflict and tension and warfare. In fact, in the New Testament, it continues on. The great metaphor is always one of spiritual warfare. You've got kingdoms colliding, kingdoms that exist that are opposed to one another. Will we win every battle? No. But we'll win the war. In fact, uh, maybe an illustration from World War II will be helpful to you. Uh, what happened in terms of history is, uh, on the Battle of Normandy, we call it D-Day, it was June 6th, 1944, was the invasion. That battle was so significant that it forever altered and turned the tide of World War II. Like, the Germans and Japanese would never again ever recover from the Battle of Normandy, and they had such a strong foothold in the war that in the end, the Allied forces were sure to win. But was the war over? No, it was just D-Day. What was to come next was V-Day, and that was when the Germans finally surrendered, and that took place on May 8, 1945, which meant that everybody still fighting in the war from June 6, 1944 to May 8, 1945, the end was certain. Victory was certain, but there were still skirmishes that were taking place between D-Day and V-Day. Think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as D-Day. Listen, the tide has turned. Satan is never coming back again. But V-Day is when we are waiting for Jesus to return and have our final victory. We live in between the time and age of the Spirit. And I say all that to say this, that life after life after death is what we look forward to. And it begins with the return of Jesus. Heaven is important, but it isn't the end of the world. Someday at the time of God's choosing, He's going to fulfill a promise that He made in the life and ministry of Jesus. And we call that the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is going to come back to the earth. Let me read you just a, a few passages real quick to see this. Acts chapter 1 verse 11 says, Men of Galilee, this is Jesus ascending into heaven. And this is what it says, Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Or 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Or Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Or James 5, 8, Jesus' brother will say, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Or 2 Peter 3.10, but the day of the Lord will appear, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Or finally, Revelation 22.20, we just said earlier, he who testifies these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Well, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus. And if you're asking, well, when is that going to happen? The answer is, 
Nobody knows. Nobody knows. In fact, if you listen to Christian radio and you listen to some prophetic uh, teacher who says, hey, this is when it's going to go down, and you say, hey, what do you think of that? I'm going to say, don't listen to them anymore. Especially don't give them any money or quit your job. Like, don't do that. Jesus himself says in Mark 13, verse 32, but about that day or hour, no one knows. The angels don't know. Not even me, the son, only the father. So be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Because we live in a state of preparedness. Now, we long for that day. We could pray for that day. We want to wake up expecting it could be at any moment. And that should instruct us how we should live our lives today. And it gives us hope that at any moment, every wrong will be made right. It allows us to know that at any moment, Jesus could return. And when he does, did you know the cancer wards at Memorial Hospital and St. Joseph Hospital will be completely empty? There'll just be no need for them, right? So if you're a nurse, that's great, but you're going to have to find another job. Don't worry, Jesus will have it covered. He'll take care of it, but right? there'll be no longer... No such thing as chemotherapy, ever. Rehab hospitals that are trying to teach stroke victims how to walk again or talk again will be completely unnecessary. And the Cubs will finally win a World Series. Now, what's interesting to me is language, right? Like when we read those Old Testament passages, and it will be coupled if you read Revelation and other, it's, it's apocalyptic, full of imagery and metaphor, like moon turning into blood and fire and brimstone and those sorts of things. It's symbolism and it's metaphor. And it carries a consistent theme that the enemies of God in the end, they're going to get it. Like anyone who boasts against God or rejects God, they're going to get what's coming to them. Which raises for us the question of hell. Like, just, what is hell? Hell is this concept of God's ultimate judgment. So if you were to ask me, what is hell like? My answer is, bad, don't go there. That's my answer to you. I mean, like, is it a place of eternal torment, like fire and agony? What I would say is, I don't really know. I mean, I think that the descriptions of heaven, like streets of gold and mansions, I think are largely metaphor. I think they're imagery and likeness. I think hell with fire and agony is probably largely metaphor. But I can at least say this. Hell is that place where God is absent entirely. Hell is that place, like, like even now, you don't have to really accept God, but you get to still live in his provisional grace even now. Like, hell is that place where, no, I mean, God is completely and entirely absent. And so what the Bible seems to indicate is if you want to live your life without God, he will not in the end force himself on you and at death you will seal that fate in eternity without God. And I wish I had all the answers in regards to hell, but I don't. What I do know is God isn't there and because of that reality it's a terrible place to be. But for us, our focus is never on hell. Our hope is not even in heaven. Our hope is that one day Jesus is going to return and it will be the last final great day of the Lord and everything that is wrong will be made right. That everyone who has been diagnosed with a disease will be made well. That everything that we long for with all of our hearts to go back to the way it used to be or God's original intent will finally take place and in it will be with Jesus. And this is where our longing should be. The second coming of Jesus where heaven comes to earth. So this leads to the question, what happens then after the second coming? Like He shows up there's this bodily resurrection. Now where are we and what are we doing? 
Next week, I want to talk about the future, new heaven and a new earth. And my best guess is what we will be, what we will be doing forever. So we'll talk about that next week. You could bring your friends. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's ask God for wisdom in these mysterious matters. Father, we come to you and acknowledge that uh, your word at times is mysterious to us. and We don't have everything figured out. and We don't have all the answers and we still struggle. So I pray for wisdom in it. But what we do know is, is you get the last word and you've extended to your son all authority and all power in both heaven and on earth, and that his name is greater than any other name, which means in the end your son triumphs over everything. And so our hope is that we belong to him, and we trust you in this, and we long for that day, that great day. We, have, we prayed this morning in the line of 2,000 years of history, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.